Aloha and welcome to Thumbing Through Yesterday, the podcast where we take our favorite books off the shelf, blow the dust off them, and remind ourselves why it is we love them so. I'm Tom Galley. Joining me today, we've got Tony Pasculi. Thanks for having me, Tom. And today we're talking about my one of my favorites, especially my favorite, <laughs> one of my favorite novels, The Moat in God's Eye. So excited to talk about this one. Yeah, I first encountered this, oh, I want to say early college uh, might have been late high school. I don't know, but it it has really stuck with me. Although honestly, I've only read it a few times. Um, yeah, this this might have been my twice. my fourth pass through it, maybe, wow, okay. um, maybe the third. But yeah, I really really enjoyed most of it. <laughs> um, there were a couple of things in it that I remembered as I was reading. It's like, oh yeah, this annoyed me at the time. Um, but I gotta say, whenever you start a novel and you open in the very first pages as a list of the cast of characters, it's a little intimidating. I was put off by that for a couple of reasons. Like one, I don't want to commit to learning this list. So if mm-hmm. you can't distinguish your characters better than that, you're already in trouble. Uh, but two, the first chunk of the novel in particular feels to me less like a story and more like a construction kit. It's like, hey, let's assemble a vast <laughs> array of characters and put them in an interesting environment and then and then never refer to them or use them again. It's like there's a couple people who only get mentioned once or twice, so like they're important this, in the beginning. This is true. And it, it's, it feels you know, very much like someone did a lot of world building up front without regards to the storytelling. That's, I could yeah. I could see that, you know, but we, we start with that and then it's followed by a, a chronology, a feature <laughs> chronology, um, which is interesting. Um, but again, some of that we could have, a lot of that we could have puzzled out in context and most of the names we could have puzzled out in context. And um, again, a lot of that chronology doesn't pay off either. Uh, some you, of you it have does. references, a few references, yeah. But the first, the collapse of the first empire is significant. Yep. Yeah. Because this is they measure themselves against the first empire. Exactly. Um, and, that, and that's thematically important and important in their dealing with the Modis. Uh, but a lot of the, I can't even remember everything they said in that. It's just like, oh my god, this is too much to keep track of. I, I wonder if it's going to be even relevant. Yeah, a lot of it I, I, I kind of paged out. Now, I, this is one of those rare cases where I think reading on a, a paper novel would have been superior to reading in the Kindle because you could have thumb-eared, you know, dog-eared the uh, the cast of characters. So when you're reading, it's like, and Bob said this. is like, wait a minute, which one was Bob? You know, yeah. flip back to the, oh, right, Bob's that guy. The kin- I don't know if you know this. The Kindle has improved their interface for thumbing through stuff. Uh, so you can now, if you... Um, I forget what it is, how to get into this mode, but you can skim rapidly through the book to the beginning or just say go to beginning, but it'll remember where you were. It can just pop back. I'll have to look into that. So that's something I use a lot. Uh, but I didn't bother with this book because I felt <laughs> I didn't care. If I didn't remember who the character was, I did not care. Well, and a lot of it, it becomes unimportant. There's only a handful of them that really matter at the, yeah. at the end of the day. But yeah, I, uh, I don't know. I just, I really enjoy... The first two-thirds, maybe the first three-quarters of this book just are riveting to me. And then it turns into a romance novel, at which point I lose a lot of interest. It's weird. I didn't think it turned into a romance novel, but I thought, um, yeah, the beginning is, well, the first chunk of it is a little dry, I think. It's it's like we're just going through. We don't know what the story is yet. But as soon as we know what the story is and we're off to the moat to to investigate, Mm -hmm. it's a first contact novel, which is always exciting. I love first contact novels. but uh, but then you learn the terrible secret of the Modis, and then the people who learn that secret die. And then we spend the second half of the book learning it again. And I'm just like, <laughs> and those scenes leading up to that moment are some of the most exciting scenes in the book. Uh, you've got the, um, 
you know, trying to, the, their ship gets taken over. Uh, it's infested by a plague of, of watchmakers. Watchmakers or brownies. Uh, yeah. And, uh, and they, and they lose the ship and they have to evacuate everybody. And that's exciting. At the same time, some midshipmen, uh, launch their escape pods and, and they make it to the planet. And there's this whole sort of Capricorn one scenario where it's like, did they survive or didn't they? Um, and we get their whole story and they're the ones that learn the terrible secret. And then, all of that exciting stuff gets followed up by a whole long, like as you say, a romantic subplot, and yeah. then a political subplot of of treaties and meetings. And, yeah, and you know, the, the treaties <laughs> and the meetings portion of it didn't bother me because that that is is viable. But they spent they focused on the wrong parts of it. Yeah. Um, you know, and then again, the the whole romance subplot it added nothing to the book. I didn't care enough about the characters to care that they were romantically involved, and I, I didn't see that it built up to them being romantically involved. It's just at some point, um, uh, either uh, Niven or Brunel decided, okay, and these guys are going to fall in love, starting in chapter. You know, oh, I actually found that very plausible because they were the only two people of the appropriate rank to be romantically involved. And there was this whole thing about duty because they're aristocrats. Right. The, arist the aristocracy well, is. Well, that was that was so much fun to me because you've, <laughs> you've got people. They've got aristocratic titles. They've got religious titles, and they've got military titles. Yes. Um, you know, and, and there's even a, a plot early in the thing. You know, when um, Lord Blaine, uh, Roderick. Yeah. I've, I wrote his name down. Roderick Harold, um, who's the becomes the captain of MacArthur. Um, he gave his word to, you know, some some outlier faction, you know, and his commanding admiral said, who did you give your word as? Was it as a, an officer of the Navy or was it your, you know, aristocratic word? He's like, it's my aristocratic word. He's like, okay, so that opens possibilities as to, you know, if he doesn't honor it, what are the consequences going to be versus what would yeah. they have been if it had been his military word? Yeah. Very futile, yeah. Yes, yeah. So... I found that interesting. I think I think the second half of the book is, is a lot of Purnell's influence. I find that uh, so you were looking for a Niven book. You wanted to read a Niven book, mm -hmm. and this is kind of almost the least Niven-y <laughs> Niven book you could have picked because there's so much of Purnell in this. A, a Niven writes really lean, spare, high concept, edgy, science based fiction, and Purnell is is more. Uh, uh, I don't want to say bloated, but certainly longer and much more uh, heavily influenced by politics and military. Things. Maybe um, maybe Larry started at the beginning and maybe and then uh, Pinnell started at the end and they met in the middle. <laughs> I don't know. I do feel like they told one part of the story twice, and the first part was the more interesting time. <laughs> Definitely. Well, you know, we're looking at the humans trying to puzzle out the Modi secret, whereas yes. you know, when when we have the three midshipmen on the planet. Um, they're kind of beat over the head with the Modi they, secret. They get handed. They get handed the secret. Yeah. Yes. Now there's a there's a part in that sequence that bothers the bejesus out of me. And as I was reading it, I remembered it bothering the bejesus out of me back when I read it the first time and previous mm -hmm. times through. Um, and it has to deal with the midshipmen when they die. I've I've got it all highlighted in here. But we find out. You know, they they get killed in an attack by the the demons, right? They're mm -hmm. stranded on the planet. They are they're running for their lives unsuccessfully. So, um, one of them gets shot by a by a warrior cast. The second one stabs the third one through the neck with a sword because the the third one's not allowed to commit suicide, and it's clear that they're about to get overrun. Yeah. And then he himself gets himself gets shot by a demon. So all three of them are casualties of either you know, of of hostile action. Mm -hmm. And yet there's a passage in here, I'm going to have to have to read it. 
Okay, okay, here we go. So this is just afterwards um, when they're all dead. And there, there was a, a moment earlier when Whitbread's Modi had, to get his attention, had grabbed him by the front of his shirt with her powerful left hand, not with the, the right mm-hmm. hands. Um, she was executed for disobedience, and she died alone. Her sisters did not hate her, but they could not bring themselves to speak to one who had killed her own, and I'm actually going to try to pronounce this, Fionch. <laughs> right. But... At no point did she kill anybody, right? We, we were specifically told how each of the three midshipmen died. Okay. Um, I don't remember that passage. I thought that, I thought that, that and maybe it's because I remember the second passage, that they, they, had, they had intervened to save them from, because the, they, they wanted to keep them alive, right? They did want to keep them alive. The intention yeah. was to keep them alive, but yeah. it just didn't work out that way. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. I did not notice that inconsistency. So if... if, if I mean, and again, it's, it's one of those little things that has, you know, whatever. Um, I mean, they could have been upset because of the fact that she grabbed him with her left hand, because they specifically mm-hmm. do talk about her doing that, was forbidden. But no, they, they say she killed him, but she didn't kill anybody unless helping him to try to escape a lifetime of imprisonment somehow qualifies as killing him. Yeah, maybe. So let's talk about the Modis, because they, you okay. know, in spite of the fact that I have some issues with the book itself, I love these aliens, they're so interesting. Uh, they're 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 such a. I mean, they're there's a lot about the human body that makes sense as something that would uh, arise for intelligent life in other forms or in other places. You know, independent evolution, uh, and yet the motives are close enough to that that it seems very plausible and different enough to be very very interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the big thing, of course, you mentioned is they have one very, very strong left hand and two much more intricate and delicate right hands. So they're asymmetrical. Uh, oh, and they don't have a spine. That's less they interesting. They don't have a spine. They don't have a spine. They just have back bones, literal like femurs, just like two huge femurs in their back. So they can't bend or rotate or anything like that. Um, and that's great. And then they have this uh, and they have this terrible secret, uh, which I... Is great, which drives the whole book and very, very effectively. Yeah, yeah. Now they're they're a fascinating culture. Um, I don't know if actually culture is the right word, but I mean the, the the fact that they have you know through natural selection and through you know their own intervention developed this stratified caste system yes. um, that is so hardwired into them they can't conceive of life everywhere not following the same model. Yes, um, which is. Actually, no different than humans, right? We were, we're, we're so convinced we've got the, the answers that this, this clash, um, and over such a little thing, which should be such a little thing, but in the, in the future, where are we in the Second Empire, Third Empire, whatever the current empire is, um, everybody's prudes, right? We're prudish. <laughs> we don't talk about sex. We don't talk about reproduction. So yeah. this one thing that is the Modi's terrible secret is already in like a... a Ooh, I don't know if we should even talk about that. It's off the table for discussion, so we can't learn about it. Right? Because we're blinding ourselves. Yes. Um, And they very adroitly lead the humans away from any attempts at that discussion. So, well, clearly, I mean, there's things we wouldn't talk about, um, and there's things they wouldn't talk about. But the idea that you know, as you get to the end, you've got the three ambassadors, and they realize humanity is going to kill us, kill us. All if we don't come up with a solution here, because if we get out, we're going to infest the galaxy and 
the entire galaxy is going to be subject to these cycles. Yes. On, a, on a galaxy-wide scale, there's absolutely nothing that we can do to prevent it, and yet this is what we're trying to do. We're trying to be a plague on the galaxy. I thought that was, I like that, that self-reflection on the part of at least one of the Modis that, you know, I mean, there's a, there's a desperation to escape the confines of their home planet because they're condemned by these cycles. Um, but then there's also that recognition that if they do escape, there'd be some temporary relief, but then they would, they would be condemning a galaxy's worth of population to these cycles, yep. that they're really inescapable. Um, yeah, so that was, that was thoughtful. And the idea that a civilization could be so very, very old, and, and, and we never actually get an answer to how old, but it's old enough that there are no radioactive materials left anywhere <laughs> yeah. in the solar system. That's pretty old. It's yeah. at least 100,000 years, if not more, probably much more, because they've had evolution uh, over the course of their civilization. Yep. They, yeah. they, have, they have steered their own evolution, right? Yeah. I mean, they created, uh, as horrific as it is, they created helpless modis to be food, yeah. you know, they, a, a meat breed. Yeah. And the, the fact that when they try to identify with a, with a human, because they've got that caste system so built into them and the fact that humans don't work that way, um, it actually drove at least one of them, if not all of them to some degree, completely bonkers. Yes. Yeah. Um, they go insane. They go insane. Um, maybe they just go crazy, Eddie, or maybe they go worse than that. I did appreciate the sort of hard nose. I don't know if they name check uh, Clausewitz, um, but they but they uh, at least refer to his f most famous quote, which is, "You don't prepare for what the what you think the enemy will do, but what you, what they can do." So capability matters much more than intention, mm -hmm. um, and that's you know I think that's a that's a real concern. And the tension between the you know the military is like, well, we want to play it safe, and then we're seeing no evidence of of bad behavior or bad intention. Um, and, and ultimately, a lot of the Modis were well-intentioned. And then as we learn, their intentions are irrelevant because they are not bound by intention. They are bound by biology. Yep. Yeah. So what they, are, what they will do is different from what they want to do. There's so much on the science-y side that I, that I like about this. You know, I, I like the fact that we spend a decent amount of time um, with people strapped into acceleration chairs and, and mm -hmm. starships boosting along at four, four and a half, uh, maybe 5G. I, I love the fact that we've got the, the lovable, strong-willed, but idiotic <laughs> woman who determined to show that she shan, can carry her own thing, stands up under high acceleration. Just to show um, she can. Just to show she can and almost you know, damages herself <laughs> getting back down into the chair, um, you know, and all these manly men are like, what the heck were you thinking? <laughs> yeah. We would never do such a thing. I like the naming of things. And this is something that's really hard to do in science fiction. Uh, it's like, oh, we're going to call it a, and I'm going to make up some word for some future technology. And then it's just like, that's this horrible thing that I have to deal with as a reader for the rest of the book. But like these warp points are called Alderson points because presumably some guy named Alderson discovered them. Mm -hmm. The it's Alderson like, drive, right? Yeah, the Alderson drive and the Alderson point, or they call it the Crazy Eddie point, which is fun also, uh, <laughs> taking the Modi's perspective on it. Uh, that's a really fun convention to just give very, very pronounceable human names to things, which is much how like we name things, uh, and, and not having to invent some absurd technological name that's going to have to wrestle with. One of my favorite names in this was Numb It All. They, oh, have, <laughs> they have a painkiller, and they call the painkiller Numb It All. Yeah. I thought that was just a fantastic. It's like, yep. I can totally see that as a marketing campaign. You know who else has a fun job with that? I don't know if you've read Scalzi's Old Man, uh, Old Man's War series. 
I think the only skulls you have red is red shirts. Oh, okay. So they've got these genetically enhanced soldiers, and they develop technology, and then they brand it. So uh, everybody they replace their blood with a specially enhanced kind of blood, full of nanobots and has special properties, and it's called Smart Blood, capital S, capital B. <laughs> uh, and they give them a brain implant, which is called a Brain Pal, capital B, capital B. <laughs> <laughs> it's all branded technology. It's very fun. Yeah. So I, I have two highlights on this book, which are interesting, uh, just because they, I don't know, uh, the lock, the lock on the museum. Mm-hmm. Um, is keyed to a level of technology. Yes. So you can't get into this lock until you have discovered enough astronomy to be able to figure out this puzzle on the lock. Yep. Yeah. But as Moody said, the museums are important. Yes. Right? Anything they can do to accelerate their technological development. And, and they're screwed. They don't have radioactives on the planet anymore. Yeah. They have to make the leap from fossil fuels <laughs> to, to fusion power. Yes. <laughs> Just, there's no in-between step there. Uh, it's kind of amazing they have fossil fuels left on the planet, actually. I suppose to some degree that's, I mean, you know, yeah. you can burn cellulose, right? I mean, they could grow forests and burn oh, them. Oh, sure, or, yeah, but that's much less energy dense. Or, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I don't think they have oil and coal lying around. Yeah. Uh, and the other thing was, oh, this was interesting. Uh, so I first read this book in high school, I think, because this is a game I used to play with my friends in high school, uh, and I didn't know where I had come across it. And reading this book reminded me, it must have come from this book. Um, they're talking about this Modi toy. Uh, it's a game of logic, no question about it. Uh, one player selects some rule to sort various objects into categories, and the other players attempt to deduce the rule and prove it. Uh, and so we used to do that. We just grab a handful of things, mm-hmm. and then one person would come up with a rule in their head, and they would separate, take half the pile, and separate it into two piles. Uh, and you'd use the remaining items and you'd use those as guesses to go, I think this goes in this pile. And you go, no, it goes in that pile. And you try to figure out what the rule is. Hmm. Yeah. And it could be things that are organic versus things that are inorganic, things which are shiny with things that are not shiny, uh, things which, um, things which are valuable and things which are not valuable or whatever. Yeah. Um, the rules could be arbitrary and the more, the more Baroque the rules get, the more fun the game is. Yeah. <laughs> So we used to play that, yeah. So I apparently got that from here. Huh. So the Modis got out somehow. Yeah. <laughs> shared their little puzzle game. Going back to the very beginning, one of the things that, that stuck with me was the oath that the naval officers took. Mm, okay. What the, was the oath? I don't remember the, that. I don't, they don't actually give us, I don't think they give us the terms in the oath, or maybe they did. Um, but the, the upshot is this. Because humanity has been through these collapses and had to rebuild itself on more than one occasion, um, they now think it is so important that all of humanity be under one leadership that they are completely willing to sterilize entire worlds to make it happen. You know, and our, our admiral, the commander of the Lenin, um, Admiral Kutuzov, yeah. actually had done that. Yes. Um, he was known for this. Um, and he turns out not to be that bad a guy. He is following his by God orders. And yes, Lenin will stay separate and, you know, Yes, he will preserve the secrets he was told to preserve, but at the end, he turns out to, you know, he's doing his job. He is doing his job very well, but it's not that he's unsympathetic to the other side. In fact, he, he breaks down, he allows the ambassadors on board Lenin, which was in direct violations of his orders. Yes. Um, but this is a man who had bombarded an inhabited planet simply because they didn't want to be part of the new empire. Yeah, he's he's interesting. He's one example, and there's a couple of characters that, are, that do this also. 
of, of people saying, well, this is the rule and we have to follow the rule. And then someone else goes, how can you be such a monster? It's like, I don't like the rule either. But yep. this is my job is to enforce this rule. Well, and I he, hate it. he I doesn't hate even play that card, though. I mean, for, for most of the thing, he is simply uh, an unmovable force, yes. an unmovable yeah. object, rather. Um, and it's not until very, very late in the, you know, as they're preparing to flee and as they are in flight from the, uh, from the moat that we get any glimpse behind the curtain. Yes. Then I like that, actually. So it's not a card that he plays because, again, that's not part of his orders. His orders are to enforce the rule. Yep. But we do get, like, as you say, a peek behind the curtain, and that is who he is. He doesn't like he doesn't like to have to be that hard-nosed, but he knows the consequences, or he knows the potential consequences. Yeah. Uh, and he's gonna he's gonna follow his orders, yeah. And and people are people are accusing him of the worst things. And it's like, no, he's just doing his job, man. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. <laughs> and for good reason. Yeah. Uh, if anyone else had out. been yeah. if anyone else had been in that position, they would have lost both ships. <laughs> yep. Or the Empire, one of the two. <laughs> Just one, another one of the fun sci-fi things that I loved about this, right? So the, the Modis, uh, the watchmakers are loose on MacArthur, mm -hmm. um, and they accidentally or, or whatever, but they, they improve the Langston field, right? The, the mm -hmm. energy-absorbing field that, that protects the ships. They turn into an expanding sphere rather than just a... Which I always felt like they played a little bit loose with the mechanics of how the field worked, um, but neither here nor there. Um, which means when they, it becomes... They have to destroy MacArthur. They have a heck of a time doing it. Yes. Because um, I like, feel huh, so much better. Wow, what, yeah. a, what a neat idea. But that same innovation, as I'm reading it, I'm like, okay, when they pop out of the crazy Eddie point on the other side, they're actually inside a star, mm -hmm. which is why, you know, they've done this in the past and no one's ever come back. It's like that expanding field is actually going to work against them. Did, did Niven and Pornell catch this? Yes, actually, yes, they did. Right. So an expanding sphere that absorbs energy inside a star. Bad. Bad. <laughs> Much worse than the non-expanding variety that the humans had. Uh, one of the characters that I enjoyed, he had a, had, well, actually he had a significant part, and he's he's the sort of villain character who has the opposite of a heel turn, like midway through the book, mm -hmm. um, which is Barry, the merchant. Yes. Uh, and he's he's so nefarious, and he's got like a Nedry moment from Jurassic Park where he steals the embryos. He saves yep. a couple of these insidious watchmakers who destroy MacArthur. He saves a couple in in cryonic suspension in one of his uh, in one of his oxygen oxygen tanks, tanks yep. which is also just great. It creates some great suspense. It never actually pays off. Um, that he's you know he's he's risking his life to bring these things back to Earth, right? Yep. Uh, but then when the uh, when the final thing happens and they take over the ship, uh, it turns out that one of the fleeing astronauts is three three watchmakers in a spacesuit, uh, <laughs> and he just has a just a nightmare reaction to it and destroys it and manages to kill them uh, and throws away his own things in the process. And thanks Allah for the rest of the book that he had that moment of clarity mm -hmm. and did not bring these monsters. To Earth. And he spends yeah. the rest of the, the the time that he shows up in the book lobbying actively against them. Yes. Um, and he gets so impassioned about it, he, he's almost, he becomes a lunatic almost, right? He, <laughs> yes. He, he gets dismissed, his concerns get dismissed in part because he is so terrified of these things that he can't stay calm and talk rationally yes. about it. Um, I love it. I love the fact that you've got such an impact on, on such a you know, evil character. This is Jafar suddenly going, oh my God, what have I done? <laughs> exactly, right? yeah. Yeah, he, he, all the way up until this point, he's someone who's always puts his own interests ahead of humanities and then he does a flip-flop. Yep. Yeah. 
He's like, no, humanity first. We have to save humanity. <laughs> well, his life was on yeah. the line all of a yeah. sudden. That, I think that, that had a profound effect, clearly. Yeah. That was a fun character for me. Uh, here's a question for you. Mm -hmm. uh, there are now apparently four or five sequels to this book. Have you read any of the sequels? I know for a fact that I have read um, the second, and I believe I've read the third. Interesting. Um, I don't really particularly have any strong memories about them, so <laughs> I'm assuming that they were neither fantastic nor awful. Hmm. I kind of, you know, when I finished this, I kind of wanted to move into the, you know, pick up the second one just to see where we, uh, where we ended up, but... I didn't even know you would take the story from here because when we leave the end of this story, the, the Modis are blockaded. Uh, and I, I guess you can have a sort of a political novel about them reestablishing contact and lobbying to lift the blockade. Uh, or you could have humans going back down to the planet. And I think that's what happens. I believe that there's a, there's a, a period of time, and it's, it's not crazy long. I want to say it's like 25 years, and I might say this because I read the, the mm -hmm. description of the book. Um, that humanity has been sitting there at the crazy eddy point, and when the occasional Modi warship or exploration ship pops through, they 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 accelerate its demise, its yes. inevitable <laughs> demise. Um, but it's been a while since the ship has popped out, so yeah. they make the decision to they go investigate to go see. Oh, what's because happening they're near in the, the end of a cycle. Yeah, so yeah. they want to interesting. The Modis knew that you know the, the next collapse was imminent. Um, yeah. So here's a here's a thing I had concerns about. Uh, sort of empathetic concerns for the for the civilization in this book is they made the decision not to wipe out the Modis because they figured out a way to do this blockade. But that seems like a very precarious situation to put yourself in because we know the Modi civilization has been through cycles but been around for at least 100,000 years. Yep. Humanity has not had nearly that long a track record and has suffered a collapse itself. So if humanity goes through a collapse of their civilization, the Modis will get out. Yeah. Well, the... There's some safety there in that, at least pre-humanity, there was no reason to think the Modis ever would have gotten out, right? Because they, they had discovered the Alderson Drive. They didn't call it that. Yeah. Um, but what they knew is that whenever they got around to building a ship and sending it through the point, it yeah. just never came back. So they, they just assumed it wasn't safe, correctly so. Yeah. But now they know, they know it can be done. Yes. And they know it probably has something to do with that sneaky black field, which they now possess. Yep. Sooner or later, some crazy Eddie is going to put this together in the right permutation to get something out of there. Yeah. You know, or they're going to do what they did the first time. Take the slow route. Yeah. Take the slow route, you know. Which there was a section in that that bothered the, the bejesus out of me too. What was that? Um, so they're, they're looking at it, right? They've, they've figured out, okay, this thing is traveling by light sail. Oh, look, we found these old church records about how the, the star was so much brighter than it was for like 120 years. Yeah. So for 120 years, they've got this unbelievably massive <laughs> battery of laser, laser cannon driving this light sail. Wow. Yeah. Um, talk about commitment. But then one of the, the navigator character who never really fit in with the rest of the crew, um, Renner maybe? Anyway, he's looking at it. He goes, you know what's screwy though is they could have braked. They, they fired straight at the star. Mm -hmm. But he said if they had fired off to the side a little bit, um, they could have turned the laser off. They could have taken some time to rotate the device, and they could have used the laser for braking. And maybe I just don't know enough about sailing to see how this works. But if your source of propulsion is 20 light years straight behind you, in what possible way can you rotate your sail so that it catches light and does anything other than accelerate you? I, 
I don't know, but I do know that I don't know enough about sailing. <laughs> like, for instance, I know that it's possible to, to sail up wind. I know you can indeed sail into the wind. And it's, it, at but first it's, glance, it's like, how? The wind is the other side of you. It's pushing you in the exactly opposite direction. But there's things with complex rigging and, yeah. and certain shaped... Say, well, okay. And the keel. The keel is significant. Yeah. I don't know how you put your keel on a. How you put a keel on a. On a so I'm on a not spaceship. sure that I buy that assertion. Yeah. Um, but I mean, it's fine. It's, it's self-correcting because when they launched the the Crazy Eddie probe, they knew that they were near the end of a cycle and that it was unlikely that they would be able to keep that cannon in operation long enough for it to arrive. Yeah. So you know, they probably planned, you know, to take the most direct route because who knew if things at ground control would still be operating. Uh, the decades later that they arrived. Yeah, I don't know. I give them the benefit of the doubt because I know Niven takes the science very seriously and uh, Purnell takes the nautical stuff very seriously. So this whole Navy is based on a nautical Navy, yep, the whole structure is. of it. So, yeah. So we'll assume they know what they're talking about there, but it's still, it, it, it stretches my little brain. In fact, Niven famously, when he wrote Ringworld, and he did a lot of research to get the math right on that, and then somebody pointed out to him that he made some errors and he fixed them in a subsequent edition of the book. Hey! Yeah, he thanked the reader and said, you're right, I didn't consider these things. Uh, and he made, made changes, yeah. Uh, what's his name that wrote The Martian? Um, Andy Weir. Yeah, yeah. He, he subsequently released the, the Martian Engineer's Notebook, and he actually addresses errors that he made. Uh, I tried to read the notebook. Wow, is it all math? I mean, this is, this is for physicists and scientists and engineers. It's not a casual read. Uh, yeah, I think the Martian is pretty heavy in that direction to begin with. So at least it's got a narrative. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I said some I said some negative things about this book, uh, but I did enjoy reading it a lot. And this is a book I remember quite fondly. And I don't think I've read it. I think I read it in high school and then read it again once sometime later, maybe 10 years after that. But I haven't looked at it in 15 or 20 years. Yeah, it's been a long... And it's still a fun read. Yeah, I really, like I said, I really enjoyed the first two-thirds, three-quarters of it. Yeah. Um, and uh, I was actually talking on the phone with a buddy of mine. Shout out to JD. Thanks, bro. Um, <laughs> and he was talking about, he had been thinking about rereading the book. It's like, I have been looking for a Niven book, another Niven book to do on this show. Hmm. That's what I'm going to pick. Um, so, yeah, there we go. Have our, you, our first request. <laughs> <laughs> have you read the legacy of, I don't even know how to say this, Hero, Herot? H-E-R-E? Yes. Yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, I definitely remember the name. Okay. At the that, moment, that's all I'm remembering about it. <laughs> oh, really? Okay, because it has a lot of parallels to this book. It has a has a has an alien with a with a terrible secret, which is has something in common with the Modis. So I won't spoil it for you if you want to go back and read it. I'll have to I'll have to dig out yeah. and see. Uh, and I believe that's uh, Niven and Purnell and Barnes. Yeah. That's probably where I came across it recently. Yeah. Niven and Purnell worked together a lot. They, they got a, a nice inventory of books that they, they co-authored. Yeah. Yeah. And again, I think the, the books, and it's interesting, the books that they write together are significantly different from the books either of them write along. Yeah. Definitely. So the next, next Niven I pick will probably have to be Ringworld because I've clearly been ignoring that for too long. But that's, we got a year to worry about that. Uh, what about Integral Trees? Have you read Integral Trees? Father. <laughs> So many books. <laughs> I mean, Ringworld's great and it's a classic, but yep. just as a tale, I like I like Integral Trees better. All right. So, final thoughts. Final thoughts. I, that, that's it. This is really fun to revisit. Uh, yeah, what a what a classic of science fiction and a, and a solid read. And I wouldn't have minded if it was shorter, but uh, <laughs> but I didn't mind reading the rest of it. So yeah. 
Yeah, same for me. I, I really, <laughs> really enjoyed the read. Um, the writing just flew by. Uh, I think it was a fantastic blend of a uh, compelling story with some nice hard-ish sci-fi thrown in there to, yeah. to keep my geek happy, inner yes. geek happy. All right. Well, what's coming up next? Coming up next, we have a fan... Well, I want to say fantasy novel, but technically it's set in a science fictional universe, uh, which it's alluded to in the very first book. But it's uh, the first in a fantasy series by Stephen Brust, and it is called Jerig. All right. This will be a first read for me. All right. See you in two weeks. See you in two weeks. See you in two weeks.